0: The people that I've been introduced to from Sarah to Karen next door, the person that handles your organizational things around here. Our operations here, manager, yeah. The people in the markets to the financing people, property managers, and your local real estate experts, they've been just more than helpful. I mean, seriously. And that's why I'm back for more. I'll be buying more properties this month. And as you point out, it's a little bit of, of work up front. Really, yeah. the work's up front. And later on, as with my other properties, it's really not too bad. And the returns are just outstanding. The downside, it's not that significant. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think it's just a wonderful program. You're doing a great service for people. So I would just like to add that.
1: Welcome listeners from around the world, 165 countries worldwide. This is episode 1167, 1167. I'm here with Thomas today. We want to talk in the intro portion of the show about one of the awesome tax benefits of the most tax-favored asset class in the country, and that is income property. So let's talk about the 1031 tax-deferred exchange. Thomas, you got a few uh, things that you want to talk about here, right?
0: yeah a ten thirty one exchange a ten thirty one exchange is a way for investors to avoid capital gains. So say you're an investor with two hundred thousand in gain and also two hundred thousand in net proceeds after closing on a home. This equates to one hundred and forty thousand in capital gains, depreciation recapture and net investment income tax. If you don't use a ten thirty one Only about 130,000 in net equity remains to reinvest in another property. But if you use a 1031, then you have a chunk more money, uh, The difference in terms of how much more of a home an investor can purchase using a 1031 versus- Yeah, uh,
1: and don't don't say home because people think it's like for their home, right? We're talking about income property, of course. There are other exchange rules, by the way, listeners, under, I believe it's section 1034 of the IRS code talking about personal residence. So I just want to make sure we're kind of clear on that. Uh, We're only talking about investment property, but Thomas, I can't wait. Because we're going to talk about the way this, you know, goes over the lifetime of an investor, very significant, but go ahead with what you're saying.
0: So the personal residence, capital gains can be avoided up to, you know, a $500,000 home. Um,
1: you know, I haven't kept track of that rule lately, but if for married couples, 500000 in gain, for single people, 250000 now that... Was the rule, but since I'm not really involved in that market, I have to be honest. I haven't kept up with it because there was like a $125,000 thing. But hey, this show is not focused on personal residences. But you know, just a quick comment on it. Feel free, uh, and then let's get back to investment property. Thoughts on that? Is that the current law? $500? Yeah, yeah, that's my, yeah, that's
0: yeah. Okay. 500000 is the current statute. Going back to 1031, so. By deferring capital gains, it makes a difference of being able to purchase an investment property that's 700,000 versus a million. There are a couple changes that were made with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. The first is that the 1031 can only be used for real property.
1: I know. You can't trade cattle anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the the 1031 exchange used to apply to a few other things like cattle. You know, you could trade livestock on a 1031 tax deferred exchange. But I guess that is out the window now. And I do want to mention the ongoing disclaimer that applies to everything on the show, of course. We are not tax advisors, so... Always check our advice with a professional because everybody's situation is different and individual and taxes are a complicated area of the law. But, you know, we give you concepts and ideas. Just run those by your tax prep expert. Go ahead, Thomas.
0: Yeah, just a couple other notes, So. Personal property can be lumped into the deal as long as it doesn't account for more than 15% of the market value of the property. Okay, so in other words,
1: if you have an investment property and it has
0: some personal property
1: included with the sale. So here's an example of that. Say you have a $100,000 house and it's an income property, of course, and 15,000 of that value is some sort of personal property. Now, there are big discussions and definitions as to what is considered real property and what is considered personal property. Usually, real property is attached with a screw, okay? Now, there's a lot of debate about this stuff. It's a gray area, okay? And personal property is not attached with a screw. I'll just give you the the, the sort of very layperson's definition of it. For example, if a painting is hanging on the wall on a nail that is personal property. Most people would consider it that way. But you know, a painting isn't always quite the way you think it is. Sometimes it's the size of a wall. It's like what they call installation art. And I know most of you will not deal with this in your little rental properties in Indianapolis, okay? I get it, (laughs) you know, or wherever. But just so you know, real property and personal property, there's a difference. So Thomas, this is pretty cool because if you wanna lump some personal property into the deal, you can make that part of the exchange. That's kind of interesting. You know, one area that I'm trying to think of, like in the area of the smart home world in which we live nowadays, where a lot of our investors and homeowners are making their properties smarter. Some of these smart home appliances aren't attached to the house, so they're not real property. Now, if you have a, a ring doorbell or cameras, and they're attached. Those would be considered, you know, by most people, real property. But maybe you have some Alexa devices, and those aren't attached, or some routers, or things like that, maybe some external speakers for music and, and you know, smart speakers and such. So those would be considered potentially personal property. So it's, it's kind of interesting there, you know, to think about. Do you have any other thoughts on that, Thomas?
0: Uh, no, I I hadn't thought about the smart home. I my guess is the IRS probably is dealing with it right now, making rules on what is personal property versus what isn't in relation to smart home type of appliances yeah
1: but you know if you have if you bought some lawn furniture or stuff like that you know with the property to make it maybe more attractive to a renter you can lump that into the exchange as long as it's not more than 15 percent of the value right yep okay cool that's good to know what else do you want to say
0: uh just one other note when you do the 1031 exchange make sure you have the second property purchased within 180 days that's the limit in the new statute. Yeah,
1: and so, this can 180 be— 180 days. Yeah, good point. And so it's 45 days to identify what's called the upleg property, or the property you're exchanging into, and the relinquished property, the property you're selling, that's what's called the relinquished property in most cases. And so 45 days to identify it, in other words, you have to have usually a postmarked document that you send and you want to keep the postmark. Okay. Uh, So you have proof that you identified it and you can identify more than one property. There are some rules about that. We've done deep dive shows into 1031 tax deferred exchanges. If you want to know more, just go to jasonhartman.com, type in 1031 exchange in the search bar, and you'll find several episodes on the topic where I've interviewed uh, experts on it. And then you've got 180 days to close on that property, that new property, or you're going to pay tax. And folks, these are very strict deadlines. The other thing I want you to know is you have to have an exchange accommodator and be careful because like the world of self-directed IRAs and these custodians and so forth, This is not a regulated industry, or at least not a very regulated industry. And there have been scams out there where the exchange accommodator, because basically they're in the role of keeping the proceeds from the relinquished property, and they can keep those proceeds... And if they're crooks, they can just run off with the proceeds. Okay, just liquidate that trust account and uh, go to uh, some foreign country that doesn't have extradition. Okay, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so be careful. These things have happened over the years, and you know, you, I'm sure you can find stories about them by looking them up. And so you want to make sure you're dealing with a reputable. 1031 exchange accommodator, okay, but the amazing thing is that you gave the example of of the difference that this that equates to being able to purchase only a $700,000 replacement property instead of a $1,000,000 replacement property. And as we know, in the world of uh, retirement planning, and IRA accounts and 401k accounts, and these types of plans, one of the beauties of them, and I'm not a huge fan of these accounts, by the way. I I kind of agree with our uh, Meet the Masters speaker, Tom Wheelwright, who has talked about this fairly extensively. I don't think these plans are awesome. I think they're okay. I think if you already have one, I probably wouldn't go as far as he does in saying, hey, liquidate the plan and invest the money uh, outside of the plan. I would just keep it. I keep mine. I'm I'm not going to liquidate it. But there's a case for that, and that's up for debate. But the beauty of it is that you are reinvesting tax-deferred money. So you haven't paid the tax on that relinquished property. You haven't paid any capital gains, and you're reinvesting at the higher amount. If only you could do this with stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, right? But you can't. Unless it's in a qualified plan. Now here, you're outside of a qualified plan, and you can still do it. Hence, income property is the most tax-favored asset class in America, and it's just a beautiful thing, isn't it, Thomas?
0: It's an amazing thing, yep.
1: Anything else we should talk about in terms of 1031 tax-deferred exchanges before we adjourn to the rest of the show?
0: No, I think we got it covered.
1: All right, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure to welcome back a returning guest, and that is my good friend Ken McElroy. You've heard his name. He's the author of several of the books in the Rich Dad Advisor series with Robert Kiyosaki, and uh, he is also a huge apartment investor. In fact, he just finished a round of selling uh, several of his properties, totaling about three hundred million. Yes, three hundred million dollars <laughs> in sales volume. Ken, welcome back. How you doing?
2: Hey, Jason, what's going on? Great to be on again. Thank you.
1: Good to have you back. Congratulations. Wow, that was a lot of work to sell, what, 14 of your properties uh, for oh about 300 God. million bucks? Yeah.
2: Yeah, so much work, but all worth it. You know, that's why we're in the business, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, that sort of leads to a good question, Ken why did you sell? Do you consider the market to be a little topped out? Or what are you thinking? What, Why was the and did you exchange or did you strictly sell and liquidate?
2: All good questions. So let me walk you through kind of the methodology around it. It all started when we felt like the market was peaking or getting close to its peak. And, you know, as you know, I'm not always trying to time the market perfectly. I don't I don't go crazy trying to figure that out, but I know. That and cutting, I agree
1: with that, by the way. Yeah. Timing, timing the market is a fool's errand.
2: <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, it's it'll drive you nuts. But yeah. you know, here's what I know: everything I bought is worth significantly more than it is today. So, but also, what was happening is that we were finding that the deals that we were trying to buy, you know, were getting harder and harder and harder, and people were stretching. For pricing, and they were paying, you know, what we thought was significantly more than they were worth. So that's kind of how it started. And then we started to take a look at, because what happens is it doesn't matter if you own, for us, it was 10,000 apartments, but, you know, if you own 10 houses, you know, for sure, there's you know your bottom few houses the ones that you know aren't doing as well as the ones at the top you yeah, know you,
1: you so, always have some good ones and some problem ch- yeah, children right right yeah.
2: so yeah so, so same with us so mm-hmm. we, we started to take a look at what we called our bottom 20 percent which was the properties that you know we spent a lot of management time on and so we were looking at that and say okay what happens if the market is changes and occupancy goes down and rent growth stays flat and all those kinds of things while in the middle of all this there's so much capital trying to pay high prices and so so we started to take a look at that and i gave it uh, back actually all to the management company i said here are 14 properties this is a year ago right now if we sell these at a five percent capitalization rate I want to know what we have to do with rent growth and NOI growth in order to match what they're worth today. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So th- they went through all these different generations and ran the, the ran all the numbers. And they said, well, if cap rates go up from, say, 5 to 6% or what, what we call the exit cap rate, because, you know, there's what you buy it for and then there's what you sell it for in commercial and multifamily, it all equates down to a capitalization rate, which is simply – the price of the property divided by the net operating income. So we looked at that and we found, Jason, that if cap rates went up one point from, say, 5 to 6%, we would have to grow our net operating income by 20% just to break even. Mm, so, interesting, yeah. So, yeah, so that's how it started. And so I said, okay, well, we're clearly not going to do that. We're not going to grow our net operating income by 20%. So maybe we ought we to list these. And then from there, it was a really a feeding frenzy. We had forty five offers, and we spent basically forty five
1: offers on fourteen properties, yes. or the first one,
2: <laughs> on uh, the whole portfolio. Yeah, okay. so Ooh. it was crazy. You know, I spent basically most of the summer uh, with my partner Ross getting them into escrow. and We got them all into escrow, and then you know each one had its own, you know, was on its own track. But we ended up selling those because for two reasons. One is we felt like 80% of our time, our management time, was kind of spent on that, on those properties. And also, we felt like the market was peaking, so that was good for our investors. You know, mm-hmm. Let's exit and let's not just hold on to these for the management fees and all that kind of stuff. Let's exit and recoup some of our capital you know, and then try to redeploy if we can. That was kind of the philosophy.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting that analysis you did where you said, To achieve that 1% cap rate difference, it was a 20% growth in NOI, I believe you said, right?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right.
1: But what cap rate doesn't account for, and this is why I know in commercial real estate it's the holy grail. Well, IRR is always really the holy grail, but, you know, cap rate is the first cut It doesn't account for appreciation. So you have to think that, okay, from that vantage point that you just mentioned, definitely it seems like selling was a very good decision, but you also have to factor in that it sounds like you don't think there's a lot of appreciation left on the table, or maybe even it could go the opposite way. You could have some loss in capital value, right?
0: Well,
2: incredible question. Yeah, because you're right. That's exactly right. In our case, you know, we had owned these properties for a while we had tried to do some value add. You know, I love, you know, when you talk about forced equity cuz I think that's a misunderstood uh thing. You know, you know, take taking something and improving the value and making it worth more. It doesn't account for any of that. We had tried on these particular assets, you know, all those different strategies internally. Said, so, "Okay, you know, what if we value added, you know, you know, what if we put a bunch of capital in these, are they gonna be worth more? And and what's the market gonna do over time? And and for, in my world, if we have flat rent growth, you know, that's kind of a killer because, you know, expenses, they continue to go up year over year. And so maybe not very much, but just a couple percent, two to 3%, in with utilities and all the other things and just cost of goods all those things go up every year and so if rent stays flat then we have you know flat to negative net operating income growth you know mm-hmm. so that's yeah. why we made that decision
1: right and you know it does seem like the multifamily world and has been pretty oversupplied i mean the construction Coming out of the Great Recession, Ken has been like mind-boggling. In every, I visit a lot of cities, certainly around the U.S., but also around the world, and it's like there's just cranes everywhere building multifamily. <laughs> it's mind-boggling, you know how how much supply has come onto the market. Is that one of the reasons, you know, is that one of the things you saw and, you know, you see that causing rents to flatten a bit and the market to become more
2: competitive? Yeah, I think, yes. The interesting thing, Jason, is is we had, you forget about the period before this period. You know, right now everything's frothy and great. But mm-hmm. the new construction, believe it or not, we are still seriously undersupplied. All the numbers suggest that we're undersupplied through Twenty twenty one, and so still
1: uh, undersupplied then. Okay,
2: hmm. still undersupplied. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that a submarket can't be overbuilt, right? Of course, you know, because yeah. that's actually what happens. Like in Scottsdale, where I live, you know, they dropped a couple thousand units, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden, Scottsdale's out of balance. So that mm-hmm. can definitely happen. Right. But if you just look at the period of time where there wasn't a lot of construction, mm-hmm. people are still aging out. They're still moving out of their house. They're still going and getting jobs, and so that's actually what has happened. That's why occupancy rates across the U.S. are in the mid nineties, is because of the lack of supply. So you're right however and so that is definitely one of the factors we look at we look at what's happening so we know for example phoenix is going to deliver 11,000 units in 2019 and those are either under construction so that's a lot or, of units or, or, right yes yeah. it is right and so yes and then you have to take a look at where they're being developed and what that's going to do to those little submarkets and in a lot of cases that can annihilate a sub-market pretty quickly. Yeah,
1: in terms of meaning it puts way too much supply on the market and, and makes it very tough to get renters, right? That's what you mean?
2: absolutely Absolutely,
1: yeah. Yes. Okay. yeah. Yeah, really interesting. You know, I've never asked you this, Ken. Do you do or have you done any, you know, senior housing or assisted living stuff?
2: So, yeah, we actually own three age-restricted communities.
1: So, 55 and older.
2: Yes, and we've looked at assisted care and you know, all the other things that go along with that. And we so far have elected just to stay away from it at the moment Mm -hmm. because of the extra level of services. We're just, you know, we're not really set up for the nursing and the physicians and the food and all of that. Right. And so we've just decided to just be a apartment guys.
1: Right, right. You know, and I've got to think that that market is pretty oversupplied. I mean, The one great thing about demographics is you just know exactly what's coming because all you have to do is math, right? (laughs) You know, it's not hard to tell unless there's a plague, God forbid, or something like that, right? Or some mass immigration in only a certain age group. But, you know, you know, if if you're dealing with the population that's already here— and you go, you know, 20 years, they're going to be 20 years older, right? That's not hard to figure out. You know, the the assisted living stuff. I mean, I remember reading all kinds of articles in the late 80s about, you know, it just seems like that people have been ramping up to supply that market for a long, long time. But I don't know. You know, that's just my anecdotal feeling about it. Everybody talks about, well, the graying of America. Sure, you're right. But there's also people have been supplying to that market for Decades now.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so, so here was my experience. This is what I learned from being in the 55 and older space. And by the way, I can now move into that place.
1: <laughs> <laughs> AARP, here we come. Yeah.
2: So, <laughs> but, 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 the, but, but,
1: 55, we got to make a distinction before you say what you're going to say. 55 and older is a lot different than assisted living. I mean, 55, right. look, actually, 55, that's I was heading. I mean, yeah. That's exactly, yeah, exactly where I was yeah, heading. Okay, so,
2: yeah. So here's what I found, because we looked at one of the most remarkable senior communities in Arizona is Sun City, Mm -hmm. that was formed by Dell Webb years ago, back in the 50s and the 60s. Obviously, a visionary company. Yeah, yeah, really neat design, too. What I learned is that if you're active and healthy and, say, 60, which... You and I know there's a lot of folks like that.
0: Yeah. They don't, they
2: don't want to be looking at, you know, where they're heading. They don't want to be connected to an assisted, somebody that's congregate care or, we, or, or wheelchair, et cetera, et cetera, that, that has to be a nurse. They consider themselves super active. So we actually looked at a property in Sun City that, believe it or not, had active In one part, had uh, assisted in another part, and they were having a tough time on the active side because the people didn't want to move. They didn't want to see where they were heading.
1: Right. In other words, they don't want to be classified that way. Right. Correct. That's what you mean. Right. Yeah. yeah. They They,
2: don't want to move. They know they're heading there. You know. I know I'm heading there. You know, but. But I don't want to have to be reminded of it in, in a community that I live in. <laughs> got
1: it. Got it. Yeah, absolutely. OK, good. Where do you think the overall real estate market is heading now? And however you answer that question, the listeners have to know that you're viewing it from the chair of, you know, a large multifamily operator. So yeah, you got a I segment am. out. And by the way, you know, when you talk about what geography, right, we're looking for you. We're looking at Arizona, Texas. Where else? A couple other places, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. Oklahoma, Nevada. Uh I'm still very, very, very bullish on single family, I got to tell you. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time looking at single family. The one thing that I'm seeing, even though prices are back up to kind of where they were, but you're not seeing the massive single family development happening. And really, honestly, you're not really seeing that to a large extent on the multifamily side either. I think... Construction lenders have been super conservative on what they've been financing. And so the lack of construction financing has kind of kept, call it the supply piece, minimized. And so just in the, like the Phoenix area, like Nevada and Las Vegas is still not back to where it was. And if you look at Phoenix or let's say even Las Vegas, There's tremendous value. Now, if you look at it as compared to five years ago, (laughs) you're going to be disappointed. But if you look at it as compared to other places to move or live... I think that there's still a lot of value in a lot of markets. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm really very, very bullish on real estate.
1: Yeah, yeah, interesting. But we're not really too far away from another presidential election that is around the corner and in election timing, right? You know, uh, where the campaign's going to start ramping up here soon. Things could change. I don't really know that they will. I, I don't see the Democrats putting up anything great yet, but... Uh, You know, I don't know. There's a Sadly, there's a movement towards socialism in the country, but (laughs) we'll see. I don't know. You know, I mean, the business cycle, the global economy is cooling off. There's legitimate problems in the global economy, right? Uh, You know, there's all kinds of signs of, you know, freight shipments are down and stuff going on with China. I'll be in China for a couple of weeks next month. You know, uh, I don't know. What do you think of all all this stuff you're reading and hearing?
2: Well, I I agree with you, and I, I, I do track all that stuff. I still think the US is the safest economy in the world, even though what we read every day, it freaks everybody out. I think that's why if you look at foreign investment, whether it's Canada or Asia or anywhere else, even Central America, Mexico, there's a significant amount of money coming into the US right now. because. I wouldn't consider our dollar super safe, but I would consider it the safest (laughs) as you start to line it up along, you know, some of the others. I mean, you know, we can just throw so many under the bus, you know, even what's happening with the euro and, you know, the Canadian dollar has been all over the map and, you know, nobody trusts, you know, a lot of the Asian currency and their Asian government. And there's a lot of criticism locally at the U.S. level, but I think, That it is the, I still think the best and the safest.
1: Well, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, for all the problems the US has. It's still what it's been called for decades, which is the brink struck of the world. You know, it's it's the safest place, the least political risk. I mean, you know what was so really heartwarming to me? I mean, listen, I'm glad the administration changed last time and but I said it at my it was not the one you spoke at last year or Meet the Masters, but the one before that. And it was that event started the day after the inauguration. And it was really just I mean, it gave me goosebumps to watch the Obamas go off into the helicopter, into Marine One, and leave the White House, and the Trumps move in. Not, And I'm not making a political statement there, although, you know, I was glad to see Obama go. <laughs> but not a shot was fired. They shook hands. I mean, those two administrations couldn't be more different. Yet, just a smooth transition of power. You know, yeah, everybody's complaining, blah, 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 on either side. But, you know, that's amazing that the U.S. has been able to pull that off for 230, 40 years or whatever it's been, right? Uh, Yeah. You know, just this is a different deal than the rest of the world. And and capital always looks for safety in the U.S. You know, say what you want. It does. Yeah. It
2: does. It does. I was actually in a meeting. I was in a two-hour meeting this morning with a huge company. International company and they had a chart on money flow and where it was going. And if you take a look, there's a tremendous amount of money coming into the U.S. from, you know, Japan and from China and from Russia and from Mexico and from Canada. It's tremendous. And so really smart people managing a lot of smart money. It's all still coming here. And and while we're on the inside, you know, taking shots at all these different things that are done every day or AOC. every week, yeah, and every right. month, you know, yeah. it's easy to do that. Yeah. Like you, I've traveled a lot abroad. And it, you start to take a look at the different ways economies are set up. And, you know, there's a lot of corruption, a lot of major oh, yeah. corruption major. in a lot of countries you know, at every level. And there's a huge gap of rich and poor in most countries. And so I don't know, I still very, very bullish on the US.
1: Couldn't agree with you more. Couldn't agree with you more. So I used to talk about this all the time. And I've, I've never talked to you about it. And I haven't talked about it on the on the podcast in a while. But the impact of something I think is extremely significant to real estate investors. I think it's a just a, a game changer. And it's probably about five years away, give or take. And that is the autonomous vehicle, the self-driving car. And here's why I say that, Ken. The three primary value drivers for real estate since the beginning of time, since we were living in caves, literally, are, of course, location, location, and location, right? (laughs) So, you know, I think the self-driving car upsets that equation significantly. Geography is still meaningful, but I'm just saying, I think it's becoming less meaningful than it's ever been in human history. And this has two sides to it. Of course, you know, maybe it means a resurgence of the suburbs, because your car will just take you places, but also parking where you look at the urban core of, of any city is uh, I've heard studies that say it's anywhere between 25 and 40 percent of that land is dedicated to parking spaces. If we have self-driving on demand cars, you know, where we just summon them and they never really stop moving except to refuel or for maintenance. A car doesn't need to stop moving. Wow. What does that do? You know, there's sort of two sides to that equation.
2: Yeah, no, all incredibly good points. You're right. I I think that'll have a a lot to do with a lot. I, I think it's interesting. When I was in high school, I could not wait to get my driver's license mm-hmm. <laughs> I, yeah. I just remember that and i don't remember anybody of my age
1: yeah I me mean, neither
2: that you know couldn't wait but i will tell you your kids don't your kids, kids
1: don't care yeah or they don't or they, they kind of care, care. <laughs> but it's not a no, big deal it,
2: right they, yeah. no it's very interesting yeah. to me the number of kids that get their driver's licenses at 16 so you don't, is uh, significantly it's slow. Yeah. down yeah. and honestly you know what my kids do now is they uber mm-hmm. yeah it's already happening my son is at college he's Ubering everywhere and my other son is in high school and he Ubers everywhere. He has a car, but he was unique. Um he got his license early, but but it's interesting to me that especially like some of my residents that a car is expensive when you add the fuel and the insurance and the payment and the maintenance and all those things. Because, you know, if you're at a certain income level, you're not buying new cars, they're Mm -hmm. not under warranty. And so if you live somewhere near where you work, it's a $5 Uber, Mm
1: -hmm. you
2: know, or a $10 Uber, it makes more sense than buying a car and then trying to park it and do all the things that you said. So we're starting to see that now. It's been very interesting to watch.
1: Yeah, it really is. And But I think it goes further than that. You know, you live in Scottsdale. I used to live in Scottsdale. By the way, it's still my favorite city that I've lived in so far. <laughs> but yeah. um, if someone lives in Phoenix, right, the greater Phoenix area, and I just give this example, and say they like the ocean and they like to surf, and say they have a traditional, you know, 9 to 5 job during the week, Right. It's not too far fetched to think that that person could just get into their self-driving car Friday evening at midnight and wake up in Newport Beach to go surfing at 7 a.m. <laughs> rested, oh, I know. you know, and that just it really disrupts the concept of location, 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 where you could have you know a nice home in the Phoenix Metro for maybe. I don't know, six hundred thousand dollars. That same property in Newport Beach would cost you, you know, six million dollars. Well, maybe not that much, but (laughs) you know, it's quite a difference, right? Yeah. uh, uh, Yeah. I mean, that's a game changer, man. I, I don't know what it will actually mean, but and then you look at the garage space dedicated to normal single family homes or you know, will that be needed? Is that all going to be converted to another bedroom? It just has pretty wide-ranging implications, you know, that I, been, I, don't, I don't think any of us really know yet.
2: No, yeah, it's been interesting to watch. You're on to it. Yeah, mm. it's less and less and less uh, need for that. and I think it's been fascinating to watch. It's, it's going to have a huge implications on uh, real estate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We, we will see how it all shakes out. Hey, the Fed was really taking away the punch bowl, raising interest rates. I think they went too far. And I think a lot of people agree with that. But now they've come out. I mean, it seems like, you know, Jerome Powell is about the most transparent Fed chair we've had. And of course, you know, listeners should know that the Fed doesn't directly impact mortgage rates, but they do indirectly. They pretty much said, hey, look, you know, we're done. We're cooling off. We're not going to Try and push rates up and tighten the money supply any any more this year, but interest rates are notoriously difficult to predict. What do you think about mortgage rates and stuff?
2: I believe rates are going to stay flat or even go down. You know, if you look at all the indicators, show that you know there's been a drop in the with the ten year Treasury, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I don't know if you saw this, but the ten year yield collapsed last week, mm-hmm. and whenever that's happened it's been followed by a recession. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. We're all reading the same stuff. You know, (laughs) I was just meeting, like I said, I was just meeting with these super smart guys this morning and you know, they all believe that, but I will tell you, Ross and I, my partner, you know we spent the good part of the last two or three years trying to go to fixed rate on everything because Mm -hmm. the fed was saying, we're going to raise, we're going to raise, we're going to raise. So now, you know, Obviously, that might have been the wrong decision, but we will see i I don't believe that that we can push rates anymore because low interest rates provide credit you mm-hmm. know and i think people people are getting squeezed a little bit
1: yeah yeah they are the fed i i think is is wise to just cool it on that for a while, <laughs> you know, because they, yeah. they, got, they got too aggressive. They definitely did. You can't do that so suddenly without some serious ramifications. So they've
2: cooled off That's on That's exactly it. right.
1: Ken, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners as we wrap it up?
2: I think that, you know, I know you do such a great job, Jason, of educating your folks. I would just be the one thing that I always tell people, mostly investors and, and people that are uh, that are syndicating to invest, is make sure that you're not just arbitrarily basing next year's return on something that's completely fabricated from the last year. So in other words, don't say just because, you know, it's gone up three or four years in a row, it's going to continue, you know, always be super diligent and super conscious around all the things that could potentially stop or, you know, put an economy uh, on hold for some reason, because... I think a lot of times you go back and you look at the the, the few years before and then you say, Oh, it's going to continue. But you, as you and I both though, do, it doesn't <laughs> so yeah. just be super careful, whether it's your own money or somebody else's try to talk yourself out of it more than you try to talk yourself into it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, folks, what you're hearing there is good advice from a seasoned investor, the amateurs and the novices will buy into the, the famous last words of, of every investor, right? This time it's different.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I know.
1: So uh so that's good advice. Ken, give out your website.
2: It's dot com. w dot dot com. And uh you know, we have all kinds of uh, videos and blogs and podcasts and things and just kinda just education, just like you, Jason. So that's why I really appreciate being on your show.
1: Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us again, Ken. It's always great to have you and keep up the good work.
2: Okay, buddy. Thank you. Talk to you soon.